Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. So let's stand as we read God's Word, Mark chapter 13, verse 32. Uh, this will be uh, in preparation for a seven-hour sermon. So let's jump in. Uh, Mark chapter 13, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. You may be seated. Here's the question this morning. When is Jesus going to return? When is he going to return? Uh, oceans of ink, uh, reams of paper, and a lot of horrible preaching have been spent trying to answer that question. Uh, tons of it. And today, if you came wanting to know exactly when Jesus is going to return, you will not find out today. But there's a guy named Harold Camping. Harold was a Christian radio broadcaster. Maybe you've heard of him. And in the mid-early 2000s, around 2008, 2009, he went on his radio broadcasting on a show that was around, literally around the world. And uh, he spent two years, um, put up over 5,000 billboards around the world, uh, spent countless millions of dollars putting out books and pamphlets that were translated in 75 different languages, trying to convince millions of people, everyone he could around the world, that based on his Bible study, his understanding of numerology, and the secret code he found in the Bible, that Jesus Christ, according to Harold Camping, was going to return on May the 21st, 2011 at 6 p.m., He got on the radio and he said, it is absolutely going to happen without question at all. And so thousands of people rushed into marriages. Thousands of people emptied their bank accounts, sending their money to Harold Camping. So many people ran up credit card bills. They threw into the world parties. They quit their jobs. They gave away their houses. And a lot of people scrambled to repent on May the 20th. <laughs> well, it didn't happen. 
And so on May the 22nd, Harold Camping got on his radio program and said that he miscalculated, <laughs> that it really was supposed to be October the 21st. And so on October the 22nd, when he and everyone else was still here, he got on his radio program and said that was the end of all apocalyptic warnings. It's a great idea. Sadly, the damage had been done and thousands of his followers became victims of his deception. And that's exactly what Jesus is warning about on the Mount of Olives. He warned that there's going to be people that were going to rise up and, and they're going to say, this is when Jesus is going to return. This is when Jesus is going to return. He, here, here, am I, here am I, listen to me. And Jesus says, no one knows. Jesus says, do not listen to them. And so in Mark chapter 13, which we have been camping out for the past two weeks, we are seeing Jesus answer some questions. And he's going to answer the questions that the disciples ask based on when will the temple in Jerusalem be destroyed and will, when will be the end of the world. And why, maybe you're asking, why would, he care, why would we care about the destruction of the temple and what does the destruction of the temple have to do with the end of the world? And so Jesus in Mark chapter 13, which William Lane, who's a commentator, says is one of the most difficult, most challenging chapters in the Bible um, to, com to completely interpret, especially in the book of Mark. What we learned last week is that the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem was a foreshadowing, a sneak preview of coming attractions. That when the temple was destroyed, it really wasn't the end of the world to the Jewish people. It was an end of their way of life because they had a temple for worship. Well, now they don't. Uh, they had a sacrificial system. Well, now they don't. They had priests, but now they don't. And so instead of priests, they have rabbis. Instead of a temple, they have synagogue. And instead of sacrifices, they have a pursuit of justice. And it was the end of the world as they knew it. But Jesus is saying, out of the old can come the new. And so just as the temple's destruction was over and brought in a new world. So the second coming of Christ is the end of the old world as we know it and the ushering in of the new world that we are hoping for. And so Mark's gospel in chapter 13, Jesus gives 17 commands of how we as followers of Christ should live in light of the fact that Jesus is going to return. How do we live in a fallen, broken world? How do we live with anticipation for his coming? And so uh, what I have found, maybe you're new to churches, your first time you showed up and you're like, man, this is a weird sermon to just show up in randomly. Because look, the reality is that most people don't care about heaven or hell. They just want to know how to hack it on Monday. And maybe you're thinking, how is this applicable? This message is extremely applicable to all of us in this room, all of you watching online, because on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is going to teach us about his second coming, and he's going to call all believers to be alert, to be urgent, and to be confident. So let's unpack that really quickly. Number one, Jesus says, be alert. Verse 32, Jesus says, concerning, but concerning that day or that hour. That phrase, that day, was a Hebraic way of saying the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is that, clim is that climactic event in history, the goal in which uh, all of human history and all of redemptive history is pointing towards that day. That day is the end goal of the human drama. Uh, the theologian Martin Luther says that there are only two days on my calendar, this day and that day. Uh, the, the, the Bible talks about that day. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 that many will come to me in that day 
Paul says that I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That day is a day of reckoning, is judgment day for unbelievers, and it is liberation day for believers and for all of creation. And yet, regardless of whatever religious background you have, uh, there is within all religions this theme that there will be a ultimate judgment that there will be an end to all the corruption and perversion and death and decay and suffering of this world. And so Jesus is this day in which all of our hearts are longing for, that day of reckoning. Well, no one knows when it's gonna be. So unlike the temple, which Jesus spends the majority of his teaching on in Mark chapter 13, uh, he, he doesn't, you know, the temple had tons of signs here there are no signs, there are no warnings concerning his day. As a matter of fact, according to Jesus, there are really only two certainties when it came to his second coming. Number one, he's coming back. Number two, no one knows when. Those are the two certainties. This is the main, th- as we read this text, those are the main certainties. So this week I've had a ton of emails and I'm grateful for your emails. I love your emails, uh, as long as they're lovely emails and they ask questions. And uh, some of the people have really want to know, Pastor, what are your views on the end time? When is the rapture going to be? And if you're new to church, the rapture is the belief that believers will be raptured or taken into heaven uh, by Jesus. And, uh, and so uh, when is your, what's your belief of the rapture? What's your belief on the millennium uh, and, and the thousand-year reign? And so uh, are you pre-trib? Do you believe the believers will be taken out before the seven years of tribulation? Are you pre-raft? Do you believe that believers are going to be raptured out before it gets really, really bad? Or are you post-trib and you think uh, that all believers have to go through all of it and then the second coming and the rapture are all the same time? Uh, are you, uh, you pan-tribulationist? You know what a pan-tribulationist is? It's, they don't really know, but they believe it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> so I'm gonna go ahead and give you my perspective. I lean towards pre-tribulation Premillennial, that's where I lean. And you say, I don't agree with you. You can be wrong, that's okay. Um, <laughs> but here, here's my main end times conviction. Like this is, this is a, I made a decision in seminary and this is what I've stuck with and, and hopefully will continue to stick with. And that is this, when it comes to the end times and prophecy, we need to be gracious to other people. Amen. Because Jesus says nobody knows. Secondly, because nobody knows, We just need to be faithful and ready for him to return. And Jesus says here that the angels don't even know. That he even goes further. He says, I don't even know. Now, you would think if you're going to return that you at least know when you're going to return. But Jesus says, I don't even know. And you you read that, you're like, well, what's that all about? I mean, Jesus doesn't know. Does that mean that Jesus isn't God? No, that's not what that means. When Jesus was on earth, he voluntarily laid down the full spectrum of his deity for a period of time to fulfill the mission. And so when Jesus came from heaven to earth, he was 100% God and 100% man. So much God as if he wasn't man and so much man as if he wasn't God. He's the God man. And yet Philippians tells us that Jesus, in becoming a man, uh, voluntarily emptied himself. The Greek word is kenosis, that he emptied himself of the full spectrum of his deity. So let's think about this in this way. Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, is God and he is omnipresent. That is, he is everywhere. And he lives in time, out of time, in space, out of, uh, in, uh, out of space and in space. And so he always has been omnipresent. 
But in the Gospels, when Jesus was born in, a, in Bethlehem and he lived on this earth, he emptied himself of his omnipresence and was in one place at one time. Jesus is omniscient, that is, he's all-knowing. He knows everything. He knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. Yet, when Jesus came to this earth, of his own free will and volition, he chose to set that aside. And you say, well, didn't Jesus know stuff? Yes, but that was, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit was telling him that stuff. And the other thing is Jesus is immortal. That is, he's God. You can't kill God. God is eternal, immortal. And yet, when Jesus came to this earth, he voluntarily chose to be vulnerable and killable. And if he wasn't vulnerable and killable, we would have no salvation. And so as a human, Jesus got hungry. As God, he fed thousands. As a man, Jesus got thirsty, but as God, he turned water into wine. As a man, he got tired, but as God, he raised the dead man. As a man, he counted birthdays. As God, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so therefore, as a man, he did not know the day of his return. But as God, he promised that he would return with clouds and power and glory. And so Jesus says, I don't know. The angels don't know. So why do you think you know? And why do you think you should know? John Calvin says that it would be proof of excessive pride and wicked envy to desire that we who creep on the earth should know more than the angels. And so because Jesus says no one knows, and because Jesus says you can't figure it out, he leaves us with three commands in this passage. Number one, he says, be on guard. Number two, keep awake. Number three, stay awake. These are the same three commands I give for my sermons. Be on guard. Keep awake, stay awake, because <laughs> you don't know when the sermon will be over and you might get called on to pray. All right? <laughs> Jesus says you don't know when the time will come, and so you have to stay awake. You can't get sleepy or lazy. You can't start slipping and sliding in your prayer life or your scripture time or your self-control. You've got to watch your tongue and watch your diet and watch what you watch because you have no idea when he's going to return. You know, we live in Florida and we're heading into this hurricane season. Aren't you excited? And um, if you were here last year for Hurricane Ian, uh, you remember when they were predicting and you had this cone, the cone, it wasn't an ice cream cone. It was a cone of stink, okay? And, and when it first started, the cone was like Tampa and you're like, sorry for those people in Tampa. Thank God we got a bubble down here in Naples. But then that sucker moved south. And what happened was, is that we had a hurricane watch. And then we had a hurricane warning. And so a hurricane watch means that conditions for a hurricane are possible. A hurricane warning means that conditions are expected. And so we went from a watch to a warning. Well, when it comes to the second coming, we have both a watch and a warning. Conditions are not just possible, they should be expected. And so Jesus, however, does not want us to spend all of our time and energy trying to ex exactly uh, forecast when he's going to return. It's okay to plead ignorance. Now, that doesn't mean you should be ignorant of Scripture, but it's okay to plead ignorance when it comes to exactly when Jesus is going to return. No one knows, and according to Jesus, it's not really our business to know. 
Jesus in Acts chapter one, verse seven, after he had risen from the dead, the disciples said, hey, when's this stuff gonna happen? Jesus looked at them and says, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Listen, Jesus says, guys, y'all are not on the planning committee. You're to be on the welcoming committee. So we have to be aware, we have to be awake, we have to be ready. And just as we shouldn't be obsessed with the end of the world, we should also not be apathetic towards the end of the world. So here's the question that you need to ask yourself. How would I live, how would I live differently today if I knew Jesus was coming back tonight? Like, would it change what you do after church? Would it change your life? Now, again, I'm not asking you to be obsessed or live in paranoia or fear, but it should help you think, man, I need to be aware that it could happen at any moment. And I need to be living in a way that I'm not going to be ashamed when he shows up. So we got to be alert. Secondly, we need to be urgent. And so Jesus gives an illustration, he gives a story. And he says that this whole deal is like a man who is like a master of a house. And he has servants, he has employees, and he goes out of town for business and he leaves each of his employees with a specific task to do in the company or to do in the house. And he has a doorkeeper, which was like the manager, like the number two in command. And the doorkeeper was to make sure that, that they were, they were gonna, the house would be ready so that when the master returned, everything would be all right. And so the doorkeeper was supposed to be awake 24 seven, essentially ready, alert, but doing the work. And so Jesus says, hey, he could come at any time. Same with the second coming of Christ. And then Jesus gives specific times in the middle of the night. So he talks about evening, midnight, when the rooster crows, and in the morning. And so according to that day, in Jesus' day, there were four watches in the night. The first watch was from 6 to 9 p.m. The second watch was from 9 to midnight. The third watch was from 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. That's when the rooster crowed. And then uh, the fourth watch is 3 to 9 a.m. And so here, Jesus says that it's like a man who goes out, but he could come back. He could even come back in the middle of the night. Now, when people heard this, they're like, there's no way that guy's coming back in the middle of the night because nobody returned in the middle of the night. There were no red-eye flights in first century Israel because it was dangerous. Nobody, you know, like you didn't have cars. And so the camels didn't have any headlights. I mean, there was, it was dangerous. There were robbers, there were thieves, there were wild animals. And so the probability of a master coming in the middle of the night was low. And Jesus here is saying in that parable that even though the odds may seem low or least, or you are least expecting, you still need to watch. You still need to watch. And so this whole idea is active waiting. So we are to be active, but we are to be urgent. We have stuff to do, and we gotta make sure that stuff is done so that when Jesus returns, we're not lollygagging. We are really doing what he's called us to do. And so this is the best way I can illustrate this is, is back when I first got married and, 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 and you know, uh, in time, we had a, a son. His name is Aaron. He's my firstborn. So it was like the Simba moment there when he came out and, and when he was born and there. Uh, he's my only child who was actually born in Kentucky. So he was born in the Holy Land. And so, um, and so we were there. And, and listen, we were young. We were poor. I was a pastor of a church. My wife, she worked. And, and, uh, and so she also, one evening, uh, after a few weeks, uh, she gave me a task um, to watch Aaron a newborn baby alone. I have never watched said critter like that before. Now, back at that time, Aaron was cute and uh, just kidding. And so there was this moment 
And, and, and I'll, I'll be honest, I was scared to death. Um, and April didn't help. I mean, she put the fear of God in me. And she left me meticulous instructions. I love my wife, and she left me with instructions. She says, feed him, burp him, change his diaper, rock him, love him, keep him alive, put him to bed. Watch him. So like when you have your first kid, you watch that kid like a hawk. The second kid, you watch him kind of. The third kid, they're on their own. <laughs> and kid four, five, and six, the first and second now watch four, five, and six, right? And so there I was. I mean, this was my moment. And I, I had Aaron, and I, I fed him. She left me some things to feed him with. I burped him, had a little cloth on there. He spit up a little bit. I won't forget this moment. Changed his diaper because one meal in, one meal out. That's how kids are when they're that age. Rocked him in a little rocket chair. That little moment, I just still have that moment. And he looked like a lizard. I mean, he just did. <laughs> and there was, I got him asleep, laid him down. I started watching television. But every now and again, I go check on him and make sure he's still breathing, make sure he's fine. Stayed up and April returned and she found me faithful. And Aaron is still alive to this day <laughs> because I actively waited, but I did not look out the window and wait for her to return. I did not obsess about that. I didn't call her, hey, when are you coming home? I didn't send her a text message. I just waited, but I did what I was supposed to do while I was waiting. That's all God's calling us to do. See, watching does not mean staring out into the sky. It doesn't mean looking up in the clouds. It doesn't mean obsessing over charts or attending end time conferences. It means working while you're waiting. Jesus here does not want us speculating or trying to connect the dots with current events or prophecy, trying to decipher the code. Why does Jesus make that an emphasis? And why is this message an emphasis? Well, here's why. Because speculation is a distraction to the task at hand. If we spent half as much energy as we do trying to decipher the current events, if we spent that energy reaching the world for Christ, the world would almost be reached for Christ. There has to be a sense of urgency. Jesus is saying, I am coming back. You don't know when. And because I'm coming back and because you don't know when, your priorities should be my priorities. That you should change maybe your priorities to think and spend your time and money differently because I am returning and there is work to do. Now, the reality is, is that most of you, most of us, are probably not speculating and prognosticating about the end of the world. Uh, most of us, we may watch shows about the end of the world, but we don't want to think about it because it's scary for some people. So instead of speculating about the end of the world, what a lot of us are doing is we are wasting our lives in hedonism. Jesus said that in the end times, people are, their mantra of the day is going to be eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we may die. And so most of us, we don't think about the end of the world. We just live our life to the fullest because our lives are so much consumed by so many things that distract us from the main thing. But that's what Satan wants to do. I think how the devil works in America is, is through distraction. We're so consumed and we're consumed by what we consume that we don't have time for the things of God. And these things are not bad things. We're consumed with our careers, our vacations. How many of you have ever planned your next vacation while you were on vacation? 
We're consumed with our hobbies, our possessions, our bucket lists. And God, listen, God wants us to enjoy our lives. I'm not saying that you have to be miserable looking at the clouds and plucking a harp waiting for him to return. I'm just saying that if that's what's consuming you, you're going to miss out because the master is returning. He's going to come. Life is painfully short. And the question is, have you and I invested our time, our talents, and treasures to the fullest for his kingdom? Because Jesus says that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. And I don't want when Jesus returns for him to be sitting, for me just to be sitting around fiddling my thumbs. I mean, like he's going to return one day. And the reality is, is if you're a Christian, you have a job to do. You say, what's my job? You have a job to make disciples. The, the truth is, is that every Christian this side of heaven has a responsibility to share the gospel to every unbeliever this side of hell. So we're called to be faithful to the task. The task is reaching the world for Christ. Again, going back to Acts 1, and G Jesus is asked by the disciples, hey, when's this stuff going to happen? Jesus says, not for you to worry about when this is going to happen. you got work to do. And what's the work? Jesus says in Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, so you have no excuse, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. That is our mission. That is our vision. Our vision here is to be a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multiplying church that reaches and raises up the next generation of church planners, missionaries, disciple makers, and world changers that reaches Naples to the nations. It's always about Naples to the nations. It's not about Naples. It's about Naples to the nations. That's our job. That is our little part that God has in the story of redemptive history. Why do we do that? The reason why is because one third of the people on planet earth, we'll say very loosely, that's a number claim to be Christians, so one-third of the globe. Which means, if you've done the math, two-thirds are not. According to missiologists, one-half of the two-thirds, we're not going to do the math on that, have little to no access to the gospel. So that means, according to missiologists, it's 6,646 people groups, that is, groups of 10,000 or more united by a common language, have no gospel witness. And according to missiologists, 157,690 people die every day without Jesus Christ. That's two every second. Now you hear that and you're like, oh, that's a lot of people. I mean, think about this statistic. 65% of Collier County has no religious affiliation at all. It's one of the highest actually in the state. Well, those are statistics. And it's been said that 78.2% of all statistics can be made up at a moment's notice. <laughs> and they don't mean anything. I mean, Joseph Stalin, the crazy communist dictator of the past, he says this. He says, one man's death is a tragedy. The death of one man is a tragedy. The death of a million is a statistic. See, we, we, we tend to, when we think about these big numbers, 6,645 6, unreached, unengaged people groups, and we think of 157,690 people who die daily, those are huge numbers, they're astronomical numbers, and we forget that they are individuals like you and me who have loves, who have passions, who have needs, who have hurts, who have dreams. 
And for them to spend eternity in hell is every bit as tragic as it would be for you and for me. Do you know that I think yesterday we had our 198th mass shooting in America this year in Allen, Texas? We just now, we don't even think about it. You understand that every two second, every second, two people are dying and going to hell every second? You think the national debt is bad? As a matter of fact, if you lined up all the people who are unreached in a single file line, it would circle the globe 25 times. I mean, imagine seeing a line of people as long as the earth, 25 people wide, trampling hopelessly to hell. We got work to do. Work for the night is coming. Work for the night is coming because there's going to be a time where we're not going to be able to work. And I don't want Jesus finding me sleeping at the wheel. We don't have time to play games. We don't have time to play games with our life. We don't have time to play games at our church. We don't have time collecting shiny toys. We got to be diligently, urgently leveraging our life to the mission of the master. We don't have time to rearrange deck chairs on the sinking Titanic. We've got people to rescue. We've got people to save by the power of the Holy Spirit. John Piper asked this question. He says, what will matter 10,000 years from now? That's a question I ask myself with a lot of things. The things that I'm worried about, consumed about, scared over, 10,000 years from now, will it matter? Will it matter? We've got work to do. You know, I was at a thing a couple weeks ago and um, I had this guy who was talking about parenting and he says, most parents parent to the age of 18. So everything they do, all their goals, all their plans, all their dreams, all their objectives is to get everything done in 18 years so that that kid, when they get out the house, amen, that's what you hope for, right? For some of you is that they either have an athletic scholarship or they go to college, they go to college, they do a vocation, they can become good citizens. And he says, the problem is, is that's a little short-sighted. And he says, the problem, if you only think of the first 18 years of parenting, you're putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. He says, parent till they're 30. And he says, the reason why is because when they're 30, nobody's gonna ask them what their high school GPA was. No one when they're 30, most people are not gonna care where they went to college. No, most of them are not gonna care the stats that they had as a high school football player or basketball player or volleyball player. What they're gonna care about is, is this person a person of character and does this person follow Jesus? So this, this, that's the truth. We've got an urgent task. We've gotta raise the next generation. We've got work to do. Second, thirdly, be alert, be urgent, be confident. Stay with me on this one. Now you're reading this and you're like, be confident. Well, how can I be confident? Because Jesus just said, nobody knows. And, and I was thinking about that. You know, when it comes to the future, for believers, there's an uncertain certainty. Like we know the end, right? We know what's going to happen. At the end, Jesus wins. Amen. We know that. Amen. We know that at the end, it's going to be all right. But how we get there, we don't know. It's uncertain. We don't know the ups and the downs. 
So all of us live with a sense of uncertainty, even though we have certainty, because we don't know the future. We may die today. We, we may have some life-altering event happen to us this week. And because even though we have a certainty, we live in uncertainty, we struggle with worrying about stuff. Anybody ever worry? Don't raise your hand. I don't want you worrying about it. But how many of y'all worry? You have anxiety. We all do. We all struggle with that. But as a believer, we should have a certain certainty. But we struggle with we struggle with that because we don't know the future. And because we, that we want a certain certainty, sorry, I misspoke there. We want a certain certainty, but Jesus has called us to live in an uncertain certainty. As if you look in the Old Testament, one of the big sins was the sin of divination. And you say, what's divination? It's future telling. And so people in the Old Testament would go to witches, they would go to psychics, magicians, false prophets to get divine knowledge of the future. And so God, in the Old Testament, condemns such behavior of trying to divine the future. Well, why, would, why is God against divining the future? One is often, if it was real, it was demonic. But most often, it was fake. It's like, have you ever driven by like a, a storefront that was like a psychic owns that storefront? And they, you get a reading there, and they tell you your future. Have you ever driven by and thought, I wonder if they knew I wasn't coming in today? Oh, there's Alan. He ain't coming in today. <laughs> but the main, re the main reason that God doesn't want us to get involved with that stuff is because God wants his people to trust him now and not know everything that's going to happen in the future. That's why horoscopes are dumb. They just are. You say, well, I read mine daily. Well, you want to read your horoscope? Read the Bible. Okay, you can't depend on what some goofball makes up because any, listen, a blind squirrel can find a nut every now and again, all right? Oh, preacher, I'm an Aquarius. I'm a Christian. I know how this ends. Our problem is, our problem is this. We don't want to trust God. We want to know the future. Why? Because knowledge is power. And if I have knowledge of the future, then I can have power over the future. And if I have power over the future, then I'll feel safe. And that's why a lot of people are all obsessed with prognosticating the end of the world. And they're speculating the end times. Why? Because they want to feel safe. Do you understand that there's no promise of safety here on earth? If there's a pre-tribulation rapture, praise God. But if we got to go all the way through, praise God. The reason why Jesus does not tell us when he's going to return is because he wants us to trust in him today. We are not told the future because we are told to trust the one who holds the future. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow and I know he holds my hand. That's the truth. So we don't have to live in fear of our future. We can rest on the promises of Jesus. We can live in confidence. There's no fear in life, no fear in death. We have Christ, we have his promises, and we can move forward Amen. and not in fear. 
Augustine said that he who loves the coming of the Lord is not he who affirms that it is far off, nor is it he who says it is near, but rather he who, re- who whether it be far off or near, awaits with sincere faith, steadfast hope, and fervent love. The proof that you are waiting and looking for the coming of the Lord is that you have sincere faith, steadfast hope, and fervent love. Jesus is coming again. Maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, maybe soon. It's not a probability, it's a certainty. Spurgeon said that the hour of his appearing is not revealed in order that we may always stand tiptoe expecting it to be today. You know, as a kid, I used to beg my parents to get me out of school early. Anybody ever do that? I used to also fake sick. Anybody ever do that? Let me give you a word of advice. Do not use a hairdryer on a thermometer because you will go to the hospital. My kid has a 120-degree fever, and the only cure is more cowbell. But those who hear, hear. So don't do that. So one day, I was about probably eight years old, I, um, I begged my parents. It was about this time of the school year, May, and... Um, I said, Mom, Dad, would you please just get me out of school? I want to go home early. I miss being home. I want to be home. So my mom, on Thursday, said, Son, tomorrow, I'm going to get you out of school early. I'm going to take off of work. I'm going to take you to McDonald's. I'm get you a Happy Meal and a milkshake. I'm going to take you home. That sounded really good. So I went to school the next day. I didn't know when she's going to come get me. Went to school that next day, I was happy. Like, I was, I was strutting around, dude. Like, it was, it was like playground time is recess time. I didn't care I didn't get picked. I'm going home. As a matter of fact, I didn't want to, I didn't want to play because I want, if I could go home during recess, that's even better. I had a test. I took the test. Had my backpack ready. Waiting. Finally, the teacher comes up to me. She says, Alan, your mom is here. She's come to pick you up. Go to the office. You know what I did? Jumped up, ran to the office, got my happy meal, went home. I had joy. I was going home. One day, and I pray I'm alive, I'm going to hear that trumpet sound. And I'm going to see Jesus coming with the clouds of glory to carry me home. And he ain't coming with a happy meal. Because he is the happy meal. And when he returns, I want to have leveraged everything for his kingdom so that when he returns, I'm ready to go home. Are you ready? 
Are you ready for that day? Because for those of us in Christ, it's going home. For those of us outside of Christ, it's going to hell. Are you ready? DC Talk, you remember DC Talk? They wrote a song. Said, I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. Are you ready? Are you ready for his return? I hope you are. If you're not, you can be. Just after the last message, a guy named Soren came up to me and he says, I want to know this one question. How can I have my sins forgiven so that I can be ready to go? Amen. And over here, he got his sins forgiven Amen. and Soren is ready to go. Amen. What about you? Are you ready to go? If you're not ready, you can be ready today. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would work and move in might and power. God, that your Holy Spirit would fill this room and point us to our need for you. And God, I pray that everyone in this room is ready, ready for that day. Not speculating, not prognosticating, not panicking, but ready. For some in this room, they need to get saved. And so, Lord, right now, under the sound of my voice, either watching online or in this room or on the podcast later, if they don't know you as Savior, Lord, would today they cry out to you and would they pray a prayer like this, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Save me. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. Lord, for those who have trusted in you, would you help us this week? to live our lives for you. And God, as we think of a child or a grandchild or a family member or a friend or a neighbor or a coworker who does not know you, God, would you give us the strength to share the good news? And Lord, would we be found faithful? Would we see people as people, not statistics? Would we see them, Lord, as people who desperately need you? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.